we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands, just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! This is Parsing Immigration Policy, the weekly podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. I am Stephen Camerata, sitting in for Mark Krikorian. I'm the Center's Director of Research. I'm joined today by Arne Cass, the Executive Director of American Compass, a think tank he founded in 2020. Arne is the author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision for the Renewal of Work in America. An article in the American Conservative at the end of last year observed that Cass and his think tank have, quote, exerted a surprising influence on the broader conservative movement in a short time. American Compass recently published a new book titled Rebuilding American Capitalism, a handbook for conservative policymakers. In our discussion today with Mr. Katz, I would like to ask him about what the new handbook has to say on immigration policy. I also hope to discuss his thinking on immigration, since it is an issue that he has clearly uh, spent some time thinking about. But before we start on those matters, I would just like to ask Arne to tell our listeners a little bit more about himself and his organization, and perhaps most important, what informs the way that he thinks about policy issues like immigration. Hi, Steve. Well, thanks for having me. You know, obviously, I think immigration is, is an incredibly important topic and, and one that I approach and, and that we focus on at American Compass, you know, really from the perspective of economics. I think the work that we do generally, what I'm most interested in, what, what I think is so important, especially for conservatives to be focused on right now, is the question of how we address the ways in which our, our market seems to have gone astray? Why, why is it failing to produce the kind of broad-based prosperity for American workers and their families that we've come to expect as policy wonks and that Americans rightly expect? And so we try to look through a, a variety of lenses, whether it's you know, trade, globalization, financial markets, industrial policy, labor policy, education policy, family policy, at all the different ways policy shapes how our markets behave and, and therefore the outcomes they deliver. And immigration, the question of who is entering the labor market is, is obviously central to that discussion. And I think, you know, especially on the right of center, there's been a lot of conflict between the, the sort of old right view. Really, it's the same one that, you know, thinks another tax cut is always a good idea and more free trade is always a good idea. That kind of thinks more immigration is always a good idea because that's going to make things cheaper and cheap things are good. And our view is that that is simply (laughs) not not a sufficient way to understand what, what we want the market to deliver and under what conditions it works well. So let me see if I can um follow up a little bit on that and ask you. So what you're really arguing is that immigration is part of a larger problem 
that has worked against the interests of American workers, specifically the working class, or maybe a shorthand way would be most people who say don't have a college degree. Now, obviously, that's a gray area. You could say, well, there's lots of people who have college degrees who are part of the working class and maybe less educated people who are in the upper class. But as a general proposition, it seems like what you're saying is immigration and the way we've conducted ourselves, our permissive policies, if you will, have really worked against the interests of the working class. But this is part of a larger a larger problem that seems as if our policymakers have not prioritized and not considered fully the impact on American workers. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think a great way to think about it, you know, in the context of the labor market, which is where workers <laughs> experience the economy in a sense, is that at the end of the day, you know, forces of supply and demand do have an effect in the labor market. No one should be surprised by that. But in particular, and, and when you're, you're speaking about the working class, it's important to ask sort of under what conditions do people receive a raise? Why would an employer pay more this year than they were paying last year? And at the end of the day, the, the answer to that question, it's, it's really not that complicated. It's if they don't have a choice. <laughs> if, if they were paying $16 an hour and they can still find the workers they need for $16 an hour, they're not going to offer $17 an hour. If they can't find the workers they need for $16 an hour, then they have to seriously think about going up to $17 an hour. And it's really important to keep in mind that, you know, when it comes to the knowledge workers, which includes the policymaking class, everyone sort of takes for granted this is, as a good thing, right? We, we say, this is great. You have skills that are in demand. You know, incomes are rising. Look at all the perks folks in these industries get, how much invested in their training. And we, we see that as generally a desirable outcome. Now, the, the reason that's happening is not out of the benevolence of the employer's heart. It's because that's what employers have to do to retain those kinds of workers. And yet, when we go lower down on the economic ladder, we suddenly flip that around and, and think the opposite. We worry that labor costs are too high. We, we say, you know, oh, no, what if there's a labor shortage? We start talking about where to find more temporary workers. And that dichotomy, frankly, I think it's as much a, a problem of, of culture as it is of economic thinking, has led us really since, I'd say, the 70s to pursue this policy in immigration, in trade. You know, even when you get into to tax policy and education policy, we put all of our eggs in the we're going to create great jobs for college graduates basket and pretty much totally ignored everyone else or, or actively rooted for, for labor to be cheap. <laughs> because everyone likes cheap things, not realizing that people are workers too, and, and we need to support them in that context. And so I think that's a real shift in thinking that you are, you're seeing that happen on the right now. And, and a lot of the conflict on the right, really, in, in economic terms, gets down to this exact question, do you want labor to be as cheap as possible or not? And I think it's critically important that conservatives recognize that the answer is, is not, that, that we want a market that actually delivers good jobs and high wages for workers. I think that makes a, a lot of sense to a lot of people. As Arne and I have spoken privately, and if you read the stuff I write, I share Arne's perspective on this, I think, pretty closely in many ways. So let's talk uh, policy. Before we talk legal immigration, 
I think it will make sense to discuss illegal immigration and how to deal with it. After all, if the law is not enforced, then discussing legal immigration is kind of pointless. So what is your vision for, say, whatever level of immigration and whatever selection criteria we decide to use, what is your vision for enforcement? Well, you know, illegal immigration is the easy one in the sense that, at at least rhetorically, everyone is willing to say they don't like illegal immigration. The, The question is, how are you actually going to enforce that. And and I think, again, especially looking at it through the economic lens, it's really helpful to both substantively and politically think about the thing we're trying to prevent, which is the workers entering the labor market. And if that's the case, the good news is we actually have a very good way to <laughs> enforce the law, which which is simply to, in fact, make it extremely costly and unattractive for employers to make the mistake of illegally employing people who are not in the country and authorized to work. And I think, you know, one of the nice things about that also is that you can actually target enforcement on the employer. It's really important to say that when we talk about this problem, you know, the the employers are at least as much the problem as the illegal workers are. We really need to recognize that the employer who hires people illegally under the table is committing a very serious offense against the community (laughs) and against American workers, whether native-born or foreign-born, people who are legally a part of our national community and who do have an interest in, in a healthy labor market. And so I think the most important and, and quite straightforward mechanism is, is E-Verify. We have tools for enforcing this. We should make them mandatory. We should have much stiffer penalties for intentional or, or repeated violations. And the result would be that in the labor market, you would start to correct the problem quite quickly. Downstream from that, if, if you didn't have the attractive labor market, I think you would also see a lot less illegal immigration into the country when the economic prospects associated with it aren't, aren't attractive anymore. You know, obviously, I think most people think that makes sense. Most people who are interested in enforcement imagine that things like the border are important, an entry-exit system, but that the centerpiece of enforcement would have to be worksite enforcement, including an employment verification system that is constantly being improved and tweaked and becomes more robust. Can I just ask you, would you go any further? There are other incentives to be here illegally. So would you try to prevent states from issuing driver's licenses and giving in-state college tuition and all kinds of efforts never to cooperate with immigration enforcement efforts, including, as a matter of policy, releasing arrested illegal aliens, even when the government says, no, hold that person, we'll be there in 24 hours to pick them up? Would you try to penalize states for doing things like that? Well, you know, I, I think, as you said, there are a lot of other tools of enforcement that need to come into play. I mean, and, and even just starting at the border, we <laughs> we need to and should make it a priority as a country to have control of our border. We need to and should make it a priority to be able to ensure that people who are admitted to the country for a period of time leave at the end of that period of time. And by the way, those things are prerequisites to having an an effective legal immigration system. And, you know, I I know we'll get to that next, 
But I, I think all thoughtful people on this issue make this point, but it, it can't be made strongly enough. You know, wanting to have an effective system of enforcement and put an end to illegal immigration is not sort of inconsistent with wanting a healthy and robust system of legal immigration. In fact, it is, it is a necessary prerequisite to it. We, we have a very broken legal immigration system, and we can't address that unless we actually enforce the law. <laughs> that, 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 that is the starting point. And so I think certainly that other measures should come into play as well. You know, a lot of the things that you mentioned that strike me as fairly internal to state-level policies, I would rather see sort of taken up at the state level. I think one that's obviously an exception is, is when you're talking about welfare programs and things that are federally funded. And I think it's very important that that the federal government make clear that benefits are not intended for people who are not in the country legally to begin with. Mm -hmm. I'd love more discussion on that, but let's let's still stay with this topic a little bit more because in your writings, I like, you know, so much of it is focused on workers and their wages and working conditions. And if you had a more tight supply of labor, employers, you say, would make jobs, if there is some job that Americans are unwilling to do, though it's very hard to find such jobs in the government data. If you looked at all 474 occupations as defined by the Department of Commerce, we collect data on the foreign-born share of that, and CIS has published many reports on this. It's hard to find any that are a majority immigrant. The majority of workers in any occupation you care to name, including construction labor or roofer, and things like that is is U.S. born. So it's clear that there, these are not jobs Americans don't ever do. But if they have trouble recruiting, tight labor markets may result and then higher wages and, and better working conditions would also make them more attractive. I want to draw you into the issue that I have generally, because it's the issue I'm interested in maybe most of all, is the decline in work, uh, particularly among non-college educated men. I think it's really relevant to the immigration debate, and I wanted to hear what your thoughts were, because one of the main arguments for a permissive legal immigration system or even tolerating illegal immigration is, look, there's just not enough potential workers out there. But what that always ignores is the enormous and in some ways shocking decline in the share of people who are of working age in the labor market particularly non-college educated men. So just to give your listeners one perspective, even if we focus in on prime working age, that is 25 to 54-year-old men without a college degree, you know, in 1960, 96% of those people were either working, which was mostly, or at least if they weren't working, they were looking for a job, which means they're in the labor market. So 96% were in the labor market in 1960, Two months ago in 2023, when I last ran the numbers, it was 84%. So you're looking at really a massive decline and an explosion of people on the economic sidelines who are of working age. And just I'll add as an aside, if you just look at young people, but not too young, so you looked at 25 to 34-year-olds who don't have a college degree, men, you see the same exact decline. This has nothing to do with population aging. It has everything to do with just lots of people on disability, welfare, or just living off of their parents or living off of a partner. And the other point I would make is 
I can't even summarize all the negative consequences of that, but I'll do it in two seconds. It's associated with mental health and suicide issues, obesity, drug abuse, alcoholism, crime, social isolation, and so forth. So we know that there's a huge negative downside to having all these people out of the labor market. Listeners always need to remember that the unemployment rate, even the more expanded definitions of unemployment, is calculated based on a survey every month that looks at everybody who is working and adds to that everybody who said they've looked for a job in the last four weeks. If you looked five weeks ago, if you said, no, I'm not looking right now, but I could work, nope, you're not unemployed. Unemployed is a very specific thing. So you can literally have a quarter or 20% or 15% or higher not working, but only a tiny fraction show up as unemployed because, again, you have to say you've looked in the last four weeks. So if you're not in the labor force, that is, you're not working nor looking for work, you don't count as unemployed. And that's what we've seen the huge explosion in. Unemployment rates haven't been high in the last 20, 30 years, except, you know, very steep recession or in the very middle of COVID. But what has looked terrible is all the people on the sidelines who don't show up as unemployed. Yeah. And yet we still have lots of people saying, you know what, we just have to bring in and more foreign workers. And I want to know what, you know, what your thoughts are on that. Well, you know, I, I think where you started with, you know, this concept of jobs Americans won't do is, is exactly the right place to focus because it is maybe the dumbest phrase in American public policy. <laughs> if, if I may make a, a, a bold, but I, I think probably correct statement in that there are so many people who take it seriously and yet it is such an unserious sentiment. And the reason for that is it's, it's actually very easy to see any job could be a job Americans won't do. I love to point out, you know, if you ask computer programmers to sit in a hot, dusty field for, you know, 10 hours a day for $14 an hour with no benefit, then computer programming would be a job Americans won't do. But we make it a job Americans will do <laughs> and, and invest enormously in creating good jobs to attract people into them. It's only for some reason in, in these sort of blue-collar manual labor jobs that require less formal education that we've decided there's no obligation to actually create a good job. We should just go find someone from some other country who will accept working conditions that an American would not accept. And that's just backward in, in so many ways. The entire premise of capitalism <laughs> at the end of the day is that you want to align the things that are going to produce profit with the things that are also going to be in the public interest. That's, that's the idea of the invisible hand. And so what you want to do is say to employers, say to investors, hey, the, the way to earn a profit in America is to deliver any product or service, whether that is computer software or strawberries, in a way that also creates jobs Americans will do. That's exactly what we need. And so what we should be doing is putting more and more pressure on employers to do that by maintaining as tight a market as possible. And to your point about all these workers on, on the sidelines, this is what we're seeing right now over the last couple of years. You know, you, you hear these lumps of the labor market is too tight, it's overheated. You know, you've got 
uh, Michael Strain at, at the American Enterprise Institute saying, you know, the unemployment rate needs to go up. We need a weaker labor market. And that's just wrong. And, and it's wrong in two respects. It's wrong, first of all, because as you noted, there are actually lots and lots and lots of Americans who, who could work. And we are seeing woodwork when you actually start having to improve conditions in ways they might find appealing. The, the second thing that I think often gets overlooked in these discussions of sort of how tight is too tight for a labor market is what we're typically, you know, focused on or, or using as a proxy is the unemployment rate, right? And, and we say like, oh, well, you know, an economist will debate what the natural unemployment rate is. But once it starts to get, you know, under five, under four percent, they start to get nervous that things are too tight. It's really important to remember that there are very different unemployment rates in different segments of the labor market. If you actually break it out and look at unemployment rate by education level, what you find is that the unemployment rate for college-educated workers is always, <laughs> has been for decades below 3 or 4%. It's, you know, at times it's running at, at 1 or 2%. Conversely, for, for those with much less education, it, it's significantly higher. It'll often be running up in, you know, the 8% range or, or even higher under, you know, in, in a recession. And so for some reason, you know, no one complains that the labor market is too tight because the unemployment rate for, for highly skilled college educated workers is below three or 4%. They keep getting raises in better conditions and, and we all applaud that somehow as prosperity. It's when, <laughs> it's when the unemployment rate for, for those less educated workers starts creeping down into that range and, and employers start having to give them the same respect that that other class of workers gets, then everybody's hair is on fire. And I honestly, I mean, I've done a lot of work on this. It, it is not clear to me what possible substantive rationale there is for that distinction. And so I think it, it has to be core to an economic agenda to say, no, in, in an ideal world, the unemployment rate for workers by education level would, would be relatively the same. People with less education should should have exactly as tight a labor market as as those with very high levels of education, and that should be a goal we aspire to. Yeah, I mean that seems very reasonable. And of course, since the less educated are poorer on average, have fewer resources to draw on when they're not working, it's actually even worse for them. That's actually a vitally important point, and, and goes to the sort of core of the economic debate because. What a lot of folks on the other side of the debate who say, you know, more immigration always good will say is, well, you know, in an efficient market, you know, everybody gets paid what they're worth. And so if, if an employer isn't paying you what you're worth, you can just quit and, and go get a different job from someone who will pay you what you're worth. That is obviously a very poor <laughs> description of reality, whatever, whatever their blackboard model might say. But a key reason for that that you put your finger on is that I think a lot of, you know, more educated folks, knowledge workers sort of take for granted that they do have options. That, you know, if, if you're in your think tank job and you're not happy or you don't feel like you're being paid enough, you actually can go say, hey, I want X or I'm going to quit. And if you don't get X, you actually can quit. <laughs> You, you can probably, you know, you probably have something of a cushion. You probably have a lot of confidence there are other jobs you can go get. And so, you know, maybe the model works somewhat well for, for somebody who's in that sort of position. If you're somebody who's living paycheck to paycheck, 
and you know doesn't necessarily have as much information about other options, doesn't have that flexibility, what that means is that you just have very essentially unequal power <laughs> versus versus employers. And that's not some radical Marxist concept. That's that's something that Adam Smith wrote about in The Wealth of Nations, about how employers typically are going to be at an advantage in the labor market because they have resources and, and the workers do not. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the things we've seen in, in recent years as the labor market has gotten so tight is a lot of the gains that workers farther down the income scale have seen is because they've actually been able to quit and go find something else. And that that actual movement within the market is key to good outcomes for workers. And again, that is something that we should aspire to for all workers, not just those at the top of the income heap. And when you say, well, actually, we're going to offer an unlimited supply of unskilled workers to employers anytime they complain that they feel any pressure, you're really just cutting people off from that. Yeah. No, I think that that's a really good point. What your options and what resources you have matter a lot. Let's go on a little bit to legal immigration. More specifically, let's talk a little bit about what the handbook says. It says, quote, we want to maintain the current level of legal immigration, but skew the composition towards workers who will compete in the labor market's high-wage segments. This will tend to strengthen worker power in the market's low-wage segments. So basically, the idea is you stimulate demand for low-wage workers by increasing the supply of high-skilled workers. Is that sort of a fair summary of where you'd like to take things on legal immigration? Yeah, that's right. You know, I, I think it's an interesting analog to thinking about immigration in economic terms is that it's it's not necessarily about the absolute level. There are plenty of other reasons you might be concerned about the absolute level of immigration. If you're you know worried about the rate of assimilation, if you're worried about any range of, of cultural issues, if you're worried about you know housing stock. But in a sense, if you imagine a pool of immigrants coming into the country that is in their profile as workers, a mirror of the workers already here in the country, it just sort of looks like population growth, right? If, if we had a healthily growing native population, you wouldn't instinctively say, well, that's going to be bad for the economy. We're going to have too many workers because you would realize that's just growth. They will be workers, but they will also be consumers. You're, you're getting both the new work and the new demand for work. And so, you know, this is a point that fans of higher levels of immigration make that is is correct, that adding more immigrants doesn't necessarily mean anything for the health of, a, of the labor market, because you're adding people who are going to work and you're adding people who are going to need the stuff that workers produce. What it does mean, though, is that the mix of workers, the composition of immigration has a huge effect. So when you admit relatively more less skilled workers, and, and you know, just to, to choose an extreme example, well, we're going to admit a lot of lettuce pickers. That's a lot of people who are going to focus specifically on picking lettuce, but they're not just going to consume lettuce. <laughs> they're, they're going to consume a broadly representative basket of things that somebody consumes. And so you're adding a lot more supply of lettuce picking than you are adding demand for lettuce picking. That goes more broadly for when you add a lot of, of less skilled workers, you add a lot more supply 
than you do demand for less skilled work. Conversely, if, if you focus on adding a lot of high-skilled workers, you're adding relatively more supply for high-skilled workers, but demand for both the high-skilled and less-skilled work. And so what that means if, is if you're a, a less-skilled worker, that's terrific. And actually, the, the best paper I've seen on this is in the, the, the Cato Institute's book on this. There, there's a wonderful paper by Ethan Lewis that makes clear that even if you just want to stick with the blackboard economic theory, the way to think about it is what composition of immigration do you want? And so it seems to me that, you know, to my point that we've always had an extremely tight labor market at the high end, and that's worked out very well for the folks there. I think that's where we should be focused on additional immigration. I think that's where you're also going to get the most benefits in terms of the, the economic benefits that people talk about, you know, innovation, entrepreneurship, and so forth. And that that can then really accrue to the benefit of, of those lower down on, on the income scale who won't have new folks to compete with, but we'll see an, a, an increase in the people who, who need their labor. Mm -hmm. I think that there are reasons to think you could stimulate demand for less skilled workers by adding more skilled workers. Also, skilled workers are much more likely and almost certainly pay enough in taxes to cover their consumption of public services, whereas for unskilled workers, the evidence is very clear that they don't. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to press you a little bit on this skills question. Because in your books, and I think the way I read it, but I could be wrong, so please correct me, you have concerns when it comes to trade in that you are concerned about the deindustrialization of America, partly, partly though for national security and national defense reasons and self-sufficiency reasons to some extent, and so particularly being dependent on a place like China, you seem to want more self-sufficiency for the United States and independent of the economic reasons. So the economic reasons, I think, are your primary issues. But you don't seem to express any concern about being come dependent on foreign sources of skilled labor. And yet one consequence could be that employers say, well, we may have a problem with STEM education in America, but I, you know, I'm not going to pressure for more STEM or better schools or anything. I'll go to India to get my engineers. I'll go to Pakistan to get my chemists. And uh, I'll go to Egypt to get my mathematicians or China. And you make American universities, you make American industry less concerned about pipeline. So if we have a need for more STEM workers, well, you know, it doesn't matter to them so much what's happening and, and American kids and who's going to college and getting these technical degrees because, well, there's always a big wide world out there and I'll just hire from abroad. So you might end up with a problem of lack of self-sufficiency or the atrophy of America's ability to produce individuals with skills domestically. Does that have any concern? Do you, do you think maybe that could be an issue or maybe not? I think it's a fair point. I certainly think, you know, when I look at what's happening in a lot of universities today and, you know, policy vis-a-vis -vis China in particular is something that, that we do a lot of work on. I think there are ways in which the sectors of our, our higher education system are, are also becoming sort of strangely dependent on foreign talent. And so I do think it's fair to say, look, we want everybody to have the incentives to develop better domestic talent pipelines. 
That being said, I, I feel like that incentive is there quite strongly. That is, you know, and this goes back to the, the point about the unemployment rates and so forth. Skilled American labor, and, I mean, and we could have a three-hour conversation about the definition of skilled versus unskilled and, and what it actually looks like to evaluate that in an immigration context. We're, we're obviously oversimplifying that. But generally speaking, I think employers are increasingly recognizing that that is a sort of very high priority issue and that it would benefit them significantly to develop a a better pipeline in that respect. And so, you know, I don't know that higher levels of immigration would necessarily prevent them them from doing that. That that would be my assessment. I, I do think you know, when it comes to the higher education system in particular, we need to have a much stronger focus on pushing people toward those kinds of careers, you know, even starting before they get to higher education. But it seems to me that's really a, more than anything else, that is a problem of our education system and the way that we essentially just choose to subsidize in an open-ended way <laughs> all forms of higher education, regardless of their economic value. And the right way to channel more young people into those kinds of careers is to make, you know, make the economic incentives for doing so significantly stronger. And so there, there may be some labor market effect in that respect, but I would think the, the education policy lever is, is a much stronger one to pull. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you, Arne. We have reached our time limit. I personally could go on on this discussion for a lot longer. But we do try to keep these podcasts at a manageable length for the listener. Though, if you have any concluding remarks you want to make, uh, please go right ahead. Well, I think the one thing that that we haven't gotten to that I would just throw in that, you know, it's one of the key immigration recommendations in in the handbook and I think is just an important place to focus is is the temporary visas thing. Mm -hmm. The H-2A temporary farm worker type policy strikes me in some respects as the worst of all worlds certainly in terms of legal immigration. And we, we tend to say like, well, look, that's, you know, that's legal, that's people following the rules, and that's true. But those are terrible rules. I, uh, I, I don't think there's any reason to support temporary visa programs, except in very limited cases where, where you have, for instance, specific industrial policy priorities. And so I think any sort of robust immigration program, in, in addition to addressing the legal immigration problem, rebalancing the legal immigration also should include a phase down and ultimately entire phase out of of those temporary visa programs, again, with the intention of focusing employers with the right incentives to actually create jobs that Americans will do. One of the, the, the attractions of a guest worker program, particularly for people on the right, is it gives the employers access to the workers that they want, whether it's high or low skilled, but the workers themselves don't become voters and presumably won't use much in public services. It's a, it's a technocratic solution to a desire for workers, but a lack of a desire for actual people. And so, and that seems the way many people who are pro-business think about the issue. And that's why guest workers become attractive option. The long-term impact on a democratic republic, the impact on workers, the incentives you're creating for employers don't tend to concern them so much. But in any event, thank you again, Oren. Hopefully at some point in the future, we can do this again. I'm sure our listeners found your comments and thoughts 
extremely insightful. Yeah, no, thanks for having me. And, and absolutely, still lots more to talk about. So we'll have to do it again. This has been Parsing Immigration Policy. I am Stephen Camerata from the Center for Immigration Studies. I was joined today by Aaron Cass, Executive Director of American Compass. American Compass's new book that we discussed at length today is Rebuilding American Capitalism, a Handbook for Conservative Policymakers. It's available at their website, AmericanCompass.org. Thanks for joining us today.